grassroots movements for technological sovereignty in Barcelona, a conversation with Casey Lynch on alternative digital future, digital commons, and the glitch. Hi, everyone. This is Digital Urbanism from the Grassroots Podcast. I'm Nidhi Farvadiati, and you're listening to episode three. But before I introduce our guest, I would like to dedicate this episode to Women Life Freedom Movement, to all people living in Iran, in particular the women with the star, marginalized bodies, and the ethnic groups. Our guest today is Dr. Casey Lynch, the Assistant Professor of Digitalization and Society at the University of Twent, whose research path has been dedicated to criticizing dominate the process of digitalization, in particular those based on surveillance, extraction, and corporate control. Part of his work that we are very interested in this episode is exploring alternative approaches oriented around social and economic justice, grassroots innovation, and feminist core perspective. Very welcome to our podcast. Um, I got to know you for the first time by reading your paper on technological movements, uh, uh, a technological sovereignty movement in Barcelona. And um, I would like to um, know you first. And if you also give us some introduction about that paper, so then we can start the discussion. Yeah, sure. So uh, thanks for the invitation uh, to be here. Uh, so uh, the, by work on the technological sovereignty movement in Barcelona, I, I guess there's a few different papers uh, from that. It was the basis of my doctoral dissertation uh, that I completed at the University of Arizona in 2019. Um, and I guess as a bit of background of, of uh, to introduce that work and explain kind of how I came to it, but also a bit about who I am as a scholar. So I'm trained as a, as a geographer. Um, and I, I came to the project of studying tech sovereignty in Barcelona through a kind of roundabout way where uh, throughout my master's in the beginning of my PhD, I was studying um, a project to create a, a sort of uh, a new city and autonomous jurisdiction in Honduras uh, that was being led by Silicon Valley uh, billionaires and ideologues and, and kind of right wing libertarian um, folks that were effectively trying to colonize a small part of Honduras to create in their mind, what was going to be the sort of techno-futuristic um, uh, city. Um, so once I, I kind of stopped that research, I wasn't able to continue that research. Uh, I became interested in and in kind of challenging, you know, what what how could we challenge the 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 vision of technological futures that Silicon Valley presents to us? Because um, I think the the project that I was doing in Honduras really represented the sort of most extreme form of uh, Silicon Valley uh, ideology around technology. Um, so I went to, uh, Barcelona, um, for a variety of reasons. I, I speak Catalan and I speak Spanish and I had, uh, spent some time in, uh, Spain and, and Catalan speaking parts of Spain, uh, as a teenager. And I knew that there was a, a sort of vibrant political culture, uh, there in particular around, um, technology. It had been, uh, a, a, Barcelona in particular had been a major site of, um, sort of free culture movement uh, throughout the, the the 2000s, the early 2000s. Um, there's a long history of uh, grassroots organizing in the city. Um, and also, you know, in the, by the mid-2010s or so, Barcelona had become known as a kind of premier smart city. Um, and so it kind of had all these pieces. I didn't really know what I was going to find when I first went, but it kind of had all these pieces of, of things that I was interested in studying, the sort of combination of this rich activist uh, history uh, this sort of smart city vision uh, on the sort of global scale. Um, and so when I went um, and I arrived in Barcelona in 2016, I went really just with a, a, a kind of preliminary set of questions and, and uh, not a, a very good idea of what I was going to study. But uh, what I found pretty quickly um, was that, uh, you know, really starting with kind of one organization after another, I think I, I, the first organization that I found was uh, GifiNet, so a community wireless network, a group of uh, of people uh, that were building, maintaining their own broadband internet infrastructure um, in the city and also throughout uh, Catalonia and even stretching into other regions um, around Spain. Um, and starting from there, I started to, to, you know, gradually find through people, through connections, more and more um, community organizations, cooperatives, uh, different kinds of initiatives 
that we're all trying to think about uh, uh, digital technology from a different perspective, right? That we're challenging uh, the sort of privatized model of, of Silicon Valley, that we're challenging the kind of surveillance model uh, that we could see both in Silicon Valley, but also in, in mainstream smart city projects. Uh, that were really grounded in the uh, a lot of these projects were really grounded in the kind of territory of of the city and and specific neighborhoods and specific areas, and we're really thinking from that perspective, thinking about how technology could be used to make people's lives better in the very grounded situations uh, in which they were finding themselves, um, and so uh, that's kind of how the 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 project started. Right, was a general interest in what kinds of alternative imaginaries might be possible around technology, um, how can we imagine technological futures differently? Um, and then as a geographer, right, what I was really interested in was uh, not just sort of abstractly theorizing about that, but finding people who were actively experimenting with alternatives on the ground that were thinking about alternatives through experimentation, through community organizing of different ways, um, and to kind of work through work through those ideas uh, uh, with them. So I guess that's a, a sort of early introduction. That's a sort of uh, general uh, impetus behind the project of what I was trying to do. And then um, I can go a bit further if you want, unless uh, you have another follow-up, uh, a specific follow-up, or I can kind of talk about um, what some of those different organizations are and how they exactly organize. exactly that's, that, that's it is my uh, follow-up question can you give us some detail about organizations uh, because some of them are based on internet infrastructure some of them are based on alternative economy you know they have different practices yeah so uh, so I'll start by saying um, I sort of I the way that I um, approached this was I, I, I took a term that a lot of the organizations but perhaps not all of the organizations actively uh, use which is technological sovereignty so when I that's not my own kind of term uh, it's sort of a, a term that I uh, encountered uh, amongst these community organizations in Barcelona um, there had been a, a sort of series of, of different groups working through these terms uh, from a group that was uh, hosting a, an annual community conference on technological sovereignty and alternative visions of technology in the city. Um, there were a series of uh, sort of dossiers published by a post-capitalist eco uh, district uh, outside of Barcelona. Um, there had been uh, some writing on tech sovereignty about um, other community-based organizations working with technology in Latin America. Um, so there, there was this sort of active uh, discussion around sovereignty in Barcelona uh, at this time. And most of the organizations that I worked with actively sort of were involved in, in, in theorizing that. Um, others were perhaps less interested in the specific terms, but um, but nevertheless sort of connected to that network. So just as a, a sort of uh, uh, to clarify in, in the beginning that I, I group a lot of people, a lot of different organizations under tech sovereignty, um, and some might might more identify that with others. I think um, all of them would, would hopefully uh, agree with the general um, uh, sort of politics and ethics behind it. Mm -hmm. um, but just to say uh, uh, that. So in terms of organization, um, I think, Something that's really important to, to recognize, uh, sometimes when I talk about it again as a sort of tech sovereignty movement, I think that's sometimes hard to say because uh, it really is a very um, uh, dispersed network of different organizations, right? So you do have something like, uh, if we start even with GifiNet uh, as an example, right? So this is a community wireless network in which people are building and maintaining their own uh, internet infrastructure. Uh, there is a, a Gifi association uh, which is a sort of more formalized um, uh, association, uh, legal association that is promoting uh, the network that is working to help organize uh, the network. But even within uh, Gifi, it's actually organized locally in uh, individual neighborhoods. So there's a, a, the actual Gifi network is an or, uh, a network of, of, of networks, basically, which is what the internet is. But it's a network within the city itself. It's a network of networks. And so individual neighborhoods, uh, have their own associations that are building and maintaining their own infrastructure, connecting to other associations. And so it's very much a sort of bottom up. And I would say uh, that's quite similar across the entire kind of ecosystem or community of tech sovereignty associations in Barcelona. There's a lot of associations. A lot of them are tied together in different ways, but there is not a kind of overarching um, organization. Um, so that being said, uh, yes, we have a number. There are a number of, of groups that are uh, pretty actively uh, a part of the sort of solidarity economy. 
um, that are organized as cooperatives uh, in one way or another. Um, so in these cases, right, we can see things like uh, some of the um, workers' cooperatives of programmers that are coming together and uh, forming their own cooperatives and then seeking out um, jobs as programmers, as web developers, as other kinds of tech professionals, uh, but through a cooperative uh, manner and really based uh, uh, in the city. And that, for a lot of them, were, was a way to sort of reclaim control over their labor as tech uh, professionals. Uh, we also have sort of platform cooperatives. So there were groups that were using um, platforms, right, creating apps, uh, managing apps as a way to coordinate other kinds of uh, solidarity economies. So we can see the example, for instance, of Katuma, which was a, an organic food uh, cooperative in which uh, you have uh, programmers, actually programming cooperative that are, are building and maintaining the platform, but then the sort of uh, cooperative uh, of organic uh, local food producers and consumers that are coordinated through the platform themselves. So there's a, those are sort of two examples, and there's a variety of other examples of of specific kinds of cooperatives and uh, more sort of formalized social solidarity economy um, initiatives that um, form part of this sort of network of, of um, associations. Um, there's also a, a significant number of, of projects that uh, do come from the municipal, um, for, through the municipal government uh, in Barcelona. Um, so the idea of tech sovereignty is something that the municipality of Barcelona began um, embracing, the, the concept of that they began embracing uh, around 2015, 2016, uh, when the progressive uh, mayor, Adekolau, came to power um, and brought people like uh, Francesca Bria uh, into power as well as the chief uh, digital officer for Barcelona. And so uh, there were actually a, a quite a number of, of, um, of projects and groups and, and sort of infrastructure that came from the municipality. Um, so we can see, for example, here uh, the Ateneos de Fabricación, which are um, community maker spaces, uh, 3D printing, uh, digital production spaces that operate similar to a kind of public library in the sense that they there's a building and it's in a neighborhood and there's public access um, to these spaces. Uh, these maker spaces are oriented around a, a kind of critical ethic, um, a critical approach to technology. So it's not about gaining skills to become, you know, the best uh, worker uh, in the capitalist economy, but really um, about creating uh, new networks of production and exchange, uh, knowledge sharing within neighborhoods um, in Barcelona. Um, then there's a, a whole series of, of groups that I would say are even more informal that are maybe not, um, don't have any kind of formal structure, but are just people who get together uh, once a week or once every couple of weeks or once a month uh, to work on common projects um, related to uh, to digital technology, uh, all from a, a kind of critical perspective, um, you know, with a focus on social goals and uh, common ownership and, and things of that sort. So there's a pretty broad um, uh, diversity of, of groups um, from those really actively building their own uh, systems, um, their own technological systems to those that are getting together and, and debating and theorizing and imagining, um, but might have their sort of own projects on the side um, and so on. So there's a, it's it's quite diverse, and there's a lot of I'd say sort of cross pollination across those groups. So many of people who are involved in uh, workers cooperatives or in a platform cooperative might also uh, be a, a GIFINET member in the sense that they they connect to the internet from their home through that network. Uh, might attend some of these community conferences um, and so on, and, and others that are are sort of less um, involved but might still be tied in. So it's a it's quite a, um, a messy uh, network, uh, which makes it hard as a, as a, a researcher sometimes to study, um, but I think is also part of uh, the strength of that, uh, of tech sovereignty and the sort of tech sovereignty community in Barcelona is that there's so many different things going on and so many people involved uh, from so many different walks of life. And uh, so even when one project perhaps fails or the people that were involved uh, no longer have the time to be as involved as they once were, there seems to constantly be a sort of new people coming in, new ideas coming in. And it's really, uh, from what I saw over the several years that I was doing uh, ethnographic research there, um, a very kind of vibrant um, uh, collective uh, culture of thinking creatively about uh, technology. Very interesting. Um Something just uh, maybe a bit funny, I say, 
but GIFINET, I was reading that and I read that as WUFINET and I thought it's very clever because they are expanding their um, infrastructure, they're expanding their uh, internet infrastructure in a goofy way. So uh, that's... <laughs> that's interesting, yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. That's not, uh, yeah, I don't think that's how they, uh, they con it's not how it's pronounced. It is not really how they conceive it, but I think it is what it, it is a kind of a goofy way of, of expanding it. Uh, what's, what's really interesting about that specifically is that it does expand really just based on who's willing to, you know, go up to the roof of their building and hoist an antenna up and run some cables and connect to the network. And so, um, it's a network that does uh, expand in, uh, you know, not the kind of rationalized plan way. In most cases, right, there are neighborhoods that, that have certain different kinds of planning practices of how to expand uh, the infrastructure, but it does expand in a very sort of, yeah, kind of goofy, uh, informal way. And yeah, and sharing this common knowledge, uh, uh, I also saw that you talk about GIFINET in um, internet infrastructure as a practice of common uh, and uh, you pointed out how knowledge uh, commoning the knowledge is having this role yeah yeah so um, so this was something that I was I was interested in so uh, to take one step back I guess I'd say when I started this project and I after I uh, you know did my initial uh, research and, and encountered all these groups and had initial conversations with people, and and decided that I was going to do a longer term project, uh, sort of ethno ethnography, uh, trying to understand the practices of these groups. Um, I sort of laid out three main questions for myself that were um, really focused on on how um, you know how do these ideas, how do these alternative ideas, not just sort of stay at the the level of ideas or theorizing or imagining alternatives, but how do they actually sort of make change, right? How do they actually um, challenge and practice? Uh, the dominant technological model. And so I was really interested in this project and thinking about um, subjectivity, right? So how um, how the people involved in these networks um, become different kinds of technological subjects, challenge the way that we are, are tend to be interpolated as, as technological subjects, as users, right? As users of corporate technology or as the object of, uh, of digital surveillance, uh, as consumers uh, of technology, as consumers of services, you know, how do they challenge that? How is there a sort of challenge that model of subjectivity? I was interested in uh, this sort of question of economies, right? So what does a sort of alternative economy look like in practice, right? What are the different uh, alternative forms of labor, of ownership, of property, um, and so on? And then uh, another one was, was space, right? Uh, how does the actual infrastructures, how do the actual infrastructures get built? And I would say uh, this sort of question of knowledge and knowledge sharing cuts across uh, all of those uh, and it's something that came up continually for me in my research was that uh, most of the opportunities that I had to really interact with these different kinds of associations were through uh, often public meetings where people were sharing knowledge, right? They were sharing knowledge about uh, their own experiments with technology, about what their sort of collective was working on or they were getting together as a group. And, uh, and and working on projects and teaching each other, you know, uh, how to do different things. Um, so knowledge sharing, it just was quite clear uh, throughout my, my research that that was a, a key part of actually constituting this network, this uh, collective of, of associations. Um, and, you know, I think there's several parts uh, to to that question of knowledge sharing and why it was uh, important. And and I guess theoretically reflecting on this, I, I, it took me a while to kind of figure out, you know, how do I, you know, there's one thing to say, well, you know, people share knowledge, okay, but what does that mean? Why is that interesting in terms of the way that we think about digital technology? And I guess one of the things that I uh, that I really struggled through thinking through and that is the basis of one of my, my papers on internet infrastructure and, and the commons uh, is that the internet, right, and di digital technology is often seen as creating this sort of seamless transfer of knowledge, right? It's like you get online and you have access to the world's knowledge and you as an individual sort of internet user, as an individual technology user, have access to this knowledge and it's sort of free-flowing. Um, and there's a lot written about uh, digital commons, right, about that sort of free, based on that idea of sort of free-flowing knowledge, right? The knowledge sort of flows and so because everybody can share, you know, everybody has access to Wikipedia, that's a knowledge commons, and so isn't that great? Or, 
open source code that's a form of knowledge commons uh isn't that great um but uh you know there's something significantly different i think between when you see that uh that kind of you know free-flowing knowledge on the internet compared to you know a group of people that actually have to sort of get together in person uh in a kind of community space in a very specific context and think about technology from the ground up right think about it from the place and the space that they're situated in there's a different kind of knowledge that's necessary um for those kinds of projects right for projects that are not focused on just sort of producing code that can be shared but on making sort of material changes to the everyday environment of of the city and of the neighborhood where they're located there's a very different set of knowledges and a lot of those knowledges are not necessarily technological right and so this was what was really interesting and and i think came out a lot in my research was yes there were a lot of people that had kind of technological training in some sense or had done the work on their own to learn how to code. But there were a lot of people who did not know how to code, right, or were not sort of tech experts that were involved in these communities. Uh, and they brought other knowledges that were really important to to uh, to realizing these projects, right? So, uh, yes, coding is an important skill set. Um, technological knowledge is an important skill set. Um, but they they don't that doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? And so there's a, a real need to know the city, right? To know have a, a, a knowledge of the sort of spatial and social context of the city that you're working in and, and the people um, uh, that live around you. There's a need to understand the sort of legal and regulatory context of of technology. Uh, we saw this, for instance, quite a bit in, in Gifinet. I remember uh, one one meeting in particular in which, uh, you know, somebody kind of briefed the group or explained to the group the all of the ways that the uh, electromagnetic spectrum is is regulated as a as a commons, right? Uh, and and what what that means for how Gifinet as a as a, a project, a project that uses wireless technology, right? How does that uh, impact the the work that they do? Um, so there are all these different kinds of knowledges that were really important. Uh, and that meant there was a, a significant uh, diversity of the, the kinds of subjects and subjectivities involved or the kinds of people involved in these projects. They brought different kinds of knowledges. They shared different kinds of knowledges. And those knowledges sort of together and collectively are what allowed these projects to move forward, right? So just understanding on a technical level how uh, wireless uh, you know, communication works would not necessarily be enough to... Uh, make Ethernet function as a network, right? Without knowing really how to go up to a neighbor and explain to them uh, that you're going to put this antenna on the roof and what it is, and if they can, they can connect to it if they want. But it's, you know, it's not uh, gonna, you know, it's not causing uh, a health risk. It's not posing a health risk to them, right? Answering questions, uh, dealing with people, dealing with the community, um, all those forms of organization take a significant amount of knowledge that. Um, yeah, that, that goes beyond the technical. So uh, that's one aspect of, of knowledge sharing that I think was really important uh, to these projects. Uh, I think often uh, the, a lot of the people involved uh, were highly aware of that and, and really aware that the, the technical knowledge they had uh, or that individuals had um, only work in the context of of having these other knowledges, right, about uh, social knowledges and knowledge about the city and knowledge about the the needs of people um, around them and knowledge is about knowledge about the sort of economy and solidarity economies and how those work and how to effectively organize. Um, so yeah, that's, that's one aspect of, of knowledge sharing, um, you know, in, in terms of the ways that I've sort of theorized this uh, as an academic more, that uh, was reflecting on those aspects of knowledge sharing, I think were, were really important for me to think about, you know, what does it actually mean to create a commons, and I was really inspired by people like uh, Maria Mies work on, uh, right, she has a great article, uh, No Commons Without Community, right, so uh, great, we could create a commons, right, even let's say we created a sort of uh, digital commons in some way, or some kind of a common infrastructure in a city, um, and that people can access as sort of individuals, but is that really, is that really doing the political work of commoning, right, I think building and maintaining community uh, does a lot of the important political work, of commoning beyond just sort of creating the infrastructure. So the infrastructure, the common resources that are created are important aspects of, of the sort of work of creating a commons, a digital commons in the city. Um, but actually 
somewhat more important is that is the fact that people are working together and sharing experiences uh, and that that creates a sort of different kind of political dynamic. And looking at this commoning um, in the context of urbanism, um, how did you uh, see uh, these grassroots uh, collectives, initiatives and projects um, as an urban phenomenon from uh, uh, cooperatives to uh, community wireless networks? Uh, I'm, I'm interested in, in a, you know, a spatial aspect of them, you know, and as urban phenomenon. Yeah. So I, I think uh, I think there's somewhat different answers for different uh, different collectives. I think there are some some of the initiatives were uh, very straightforwardly uh, urban in the sense that they're dealing with infrastructure, right? So I mean, laying fiber optic cables or you know getting on a roof and hoisting an antenna and and sort of doing that kind of uh, it's very sort of spatial work. It takes a lot of planning. Uh, and so on are some of the municipal programs like the Ateneos, the Fabricación, right? The maker spaces that are physical infrastructure um, uh, maintained by the municipality uh, in neighborhoods that uh, serve a, a sort of community that is uh, in that area, right? In that neighborhood. Um, but even beyond those, I think some of the groups that, um, that were working on projects that were perhaps less uh, specifically grounded uh, were still very much um, organized locally and sort of working um, from the ground up. And so I think in particular, the way that I've thought about this as an urban phenomenon is in some way trying to sort of contrast, as I was reflecting on a, a while ago, about this idea of the sort of uh, the internet as a commons in which, you know, it's great. You can have people dispersed around the world working on a project together. Um, and a lot of the groups uh, in Barcelona, you know, were keyed into those networks as well and making use of, say, open source code that had been, you know, programmed by uh, a variety of people written by a variety of people sort of uh, strewn around the world. Um, but a lot of the the work that they were doing, the applications that they were working on were really based on on local scenarios, right? And so um, and so people were were thinking about um, uh, about about local, social, political, economic needs. Um, rather than about sort of abstract, um, you know, despatialized or or sort of universal ideas of what tech could do, um, yeah. So I'd say a, a really significant number of the projects. Um, I mean, if they if they weren't um, focused specifically on a, a specific neighborhood, even which many of them were really focused on specific neighborhoods, especially some of the uh, some very interesting kind of. Uh, social work, uh, digital uh, creativity, sort of social work uh, groups were sometimes focused really specifically on on individual neighborhoods and some of the social issues in those neighborhoods and some of the material needs of those specific neighborhoods. If they weren't focused on a specific neighborhood, a lot of other projects were really focused um, at the city level, right? Um, so I think that's one, one thing. I think the other uh, side of this is that uh, at this time that I was doing this research, as I said earlier, is when the city of Barcelona itself really tried to um, reinvent its sort of smart city model according to this idea of technological sovereignty. And at that time, so at that time, even then, there were a, a number of, uh, you know, municipal programs and city officials that were articulating um, tech sovereignty as a sort of strategy for municipal tech governance, right, or as a way of sort of fomenting um, a new model of digitalization in the city. And so to that extent, right, the sort of institutional structures of the city were also seeing tech sovereignty in a lot of these projects as a way of of, uh, of sort of urban development. Um, and I think the, uh, you know, as a sort of last step connect uh, related to that last point, um, because the smart city model had been so prominent, especially in Barcelona in the years up leading up to and, and while I was doing this research, the smart city model was really like that was the that was the next thing in digitalization, right? Was it's the smart city, it's the digitalization of the city. It's gonna change urban life in all these ways, right? Your whatever, right? And and what we saw in practice of Barcelona is that most people did not feel any kind of real direct um uh benefit, at least that they were aware of, right, of any kind of a smart city system. And so even when we see some of the earliest formulations of tech sovereignty within the activist sphere as a, uh, as a concept, so if we look at, say, the first uh, tech sovereignty conference um, hosted in 2016, I believe, 
the sort of subtitle of that was, uh, I want to say it was something like reimagining the model of the city or something, right? So uh, they were often, uh, a lot of these uh, initiatives uh, were directly contrasted to a kind of smart city um, model. And so I think there's a, a few different reasons, right, that it's 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 important to to recognize the, the sort of urban nature of this from from infrastructure to, you know, a sort of a political orientation to the communities that you're based in to the, the sort of uh, institutional structures of the municipality and what the municipality was doing um, to the sort of way that these uh, initiatives were positioning themselves uh, in opposition to a smart city model, at least partially. They also position themselves in opposition to sort of uh, surveillance uh, in social media and, and all these other things, but very much, uh, very much so uh, trying to contest the kind of smart city model. Um, you uh, explained that, at least in the uh, paper on Antibot, the first paper that I said I read about your work, um, uh, to explain them from uh, a different kind of literature, one of them was uh, pre figurative urbanism and then going to write to the city and then literature of commoning. Um, and then I saw that you're also now uh, uh, writing about glitch. I mean, you, you write about glitch in robotics, but I was also wondering, do you also see these practices as a glitch? And uh, if it is also, I think for audience is important, we have a smart introduction uh, about glitch and uh, glitch epistemology. Sure, yeah. So, uh, by way of a, a first introduction to glitch epistemology, so my my writing on glitch um, uh, is really a response to a paper by Sarah Elwood and Agnieszka Kieliszczynski um, on glitch epistemologies for computational cities, and and so I'll, I'll sort of introduce their idea of glitch there, and then sort of how I've uh, I, I've used that in my own work. Um, but for them, right, uh, Lischinski uh, in some of her other writing and then uh, Elwood and Lischinski uh, writing together are really drawing on a few different aspects of glitch, right? So for them, uh, we can think of the sort of typical way that we think of a glitch in a system as a kind of uh, uh, a sort of normal um, uh, disruption to a, a digital system, right? That's just a sort of a part of the the logic of, of uh, digital systems, right? That there are these sort of moments of, of rupture. Um, and so we have uh, sort of several different uh, theorists writing about glitch. So we can look at the way that someone like Rua Benjamin has talked about glitch as uh, not just a, a sort of disruption to the system, but as a moment that draws attention to some of the logics of the systems, to, um, to systemic biases uh, and prejudices that are, are built into systems. In that case, uh, Ru Benjamin's talking about, uh, you know, the way that racism is encoded into uh, into digital systems. And then uh, when when it becomes evident, right, it, it gets written off as a glitch, right? It was an issue in the coding. They just didn't have the right data. They didn't, uh, uh, they needed a better sampling of data to get the, the you know, algorithmic system to spit out a more accurate result, right? And so... It's sort of posed as a as a glitch, uh, and Ru Benjamin says, you know, those are actually really important moments for recognizing the the logics of of uh, the system. Uh, we also then have uh, people like uh, Legacy Russell writing about glitch feminism, um, who are saying, you know, yes, but uh, these are also um, sort of generative, right? That these uh, they, they, these disruptions to traditional digital systems, right, uh, are not just sort of opportunities for us to recognize the the logics at play and the, the biases, but can also be sort of generative of new opportunities, right? They they uh, demonstrate that the systems in place are not perfect, right? And so they uh, open up an opportunity to imagine something uh, different, right, or to enact um, a different kind of uh, future, right, in the sort of fissure that's opened up by these glitches. So uh, Lischinski and and, uh, and Elwood and their uh, writing are really drawing on both aspects of, of the glitch there, right, as both a sort of uh, disruption that calls attention to these moments, but also as a, a potentially generative um, moment. And so uh, my writing uh, on that as, as uh, uh, and so I should say, taking one step back, for Lischinski and, Edward, uh, and, uh, and 
Elwood, uh, this opens up, right, uh, an important epistemology for thinking about digital systems, in particular about computational cities or digital cities, um, and that it shifts our attention. Uh, this is at least my interpretation, is that what's really important is that it shifts our attention to um, epistemologies of digital urbanism away from uh, what I think we see in a lot of literature, um, attempts to kind of ontologically sort of understand and chart out what uh, new digital digital systems are doing, right? So there's a lot of focus on the kinds of new assemblages that are being formed and the new capacities of digital systems to sense and react in new ways, right? A lot of this, are, a lot of the, the work that we see on computational cities are making, at least in, in urban geography and related fields, are making uh, kind of ontological claims about how the city uh, and these digital systems are constituted and what they are and what their capacities are and what their limitations are. Um, but if we shift to an epistemological perspective, um, we're less interested in sort of what they are and more in sort of how we experience them, how they're experienced by different uh, people, by different individuals, and how that uh, creates opportunities and, and limitations for different people um, situated in uh, in the city. So uh, my own work, I should say, right, I, I sort of highlight the importance of glitch epistemology, um, specifically for the way that it shifts our attention to epistemologies. And what I find important about that is it makes us look at uh, what I lay out in my uh, article on this, uh, perceptions, encounters, and subjectivities, uh, in particular in relation to artificial intelligence, so saying we don't just, um, rather than asking what artificial intelligence is, right, we could ask how do different people perceive interactions with artificial intelligence? We'd say the same thing about uh, sort of digital systems in a city. How do people perceive their interactions with them? Uh, do they perceive those interactions as positive, as negative, or is the system smart? Is it, is it operating under some weird logic? Is it intelligible to those people, right? What are the, what, how do people experience it? How do people experience it in situated spaces, right? So like it, we don't all experience uh, interactions with uh, digital systems or with the computational city in the same way. Right, so where are those moments of encounter in which uh, uh, we encounter a system, right? And how how are those structured differently depending on who we are as subjects? So we might think about you know me as a uh, you know now at least a, a middle class white academic going into um, a city with a certain amount of purchasing power and you know access to a smartphone and all these different uh, you know certain kinds of financial resources. I might interact in the city in a very different way um, to somebody else. Um, so what, what are the variety of encounters that we see people having with digital systems, uh, in a city? So if we think about how people are perceiving it, when and where they're, they're encountering the systems and then how different, uh, people, right. People from different subject positions encounter the city, right. Encounter the digital city differently. Uh, we then get a, a very different sort of portrait of what digital cities might look like, right. Rather than there are these sensors and they're collecting this data and it's fed into this algorithm. We have this, uh, you know, uh, this control center or these, uh, you know, different ways that the, the, the data gives an output. We can say, great, there are some people who have access to the sort of control, uh, you know, um, you know, screens or, or, or whatever the control rooms of the digital city, but a lot of other people are encountering it and perceiving it uh, and are positioned by it uh, in very different ways uh, in their everyday life. And so in terms of how I would perceive um, some of these projects in the sort of tech sovereignty movement as representative of Glitch, uh, it's not the way that I've, I've written about Glitch up until now, but I, I think it is. Um, because they're urban hack. What are, they're kind of urban hack and urban hack. Yeah, I think they're kind of urban hacks. And I think also a lot of the projects that I've seen are, are sort of making... Um, or in some way or another, right, you might be able to say, if you were to ask people, or when I did go and, and talk to people and ask people, you know, what was the impetus behind starting this cooperative, right? Or what was the impetus behind, uh, you know, forming this new association and trying uh, trying to experiment in this new way? And often they, they would highlight a sort of moment, right? A sort of moment where something didn't work or a moment where uh, they perceived uh, an injustice, right? Or a moment where they were sort of snapped out of perhaps their... Um, sort of everyday routine and made to sort of think in a different way, right? And so um, I saw this with some of the the people involved in workers' cooperatives and, and programmers' worker cooperatives who would say, you know, I woke up one day and I realized that I was working, you know, that something happened, there was something on the news and I realized that this tech company that I was working for 
uh, was completely at odds with my uh, my own sort of personal uh, values, right? And and it, it started me on this sort of process of of uh, forming a cooperative and sort of seeking out new ways of working with others. Um, so you might see that those sort of moments, right, where there's a new story about a tech company that uh, causes a tech worker to say, "Oh no, I'm going to do something different," right? Or um, yeah, or or somebody that uh, you know uh, encounters you know the abuses of the, the the corporate smart city model when they realize that they're being um, you know they're being monitored in their neighborhood through these new sorts of sensor technologies or something that then prompts them to um, you know seek out uh, uh, some kind of response to that. So I think, well, I didn't do it at the time. I, I think the sort of glitch uh, as a sort of moment, as a sort of generative moment that calls attention to some of the logics of digital systems and perhaps uh, creates openings to imagine uh, things in, in, in a different way. I think we, I could probably trace back a lot of these different uh, uh, projects and associations in, in Barcelona to a moment that you might say, okay, there's this sort of, this sort of smooth um, narrative of tech progress that, that we get from Silicon Valley or from, from a lot of tech companies that, you know, or the smart city is going to make our life better or, you know... Um, tech work is the most desirable work, right? Uh, these sort of moments where uh, something doesn't quite add up, right? And somebody, right, an individual, not everybody, but a, an individual situated in a particular way, socially and spatially and economically and politically uh, in, uh, in, in this case, Barcelona, right? That causes them to reevaluate and to uh, imagine uh, ways of, of producing something differently. Um, so I think for me, that's what I would see is as a, uh, as key to to the glitch, but I, I think there's probably a number of other ways that I could also theorize all this through the glitch as well. I do think it's uh, the benefit of it, though, is that I think it it uh, tries it's a, an effective way of challenging sort of universal narratives of what technology is and what technological progress looks like, and um, and and is a generative opening for sort of recognizing the politics of technology and then perhaps. Uh, taking that further step of of imagining something different. Thank you so much um, about that. I was really wondering to hear your comment and um, yeah, which um, how you you could see that as a glitch. Um, and now I'm also interested to know that your uh, about your current project uh, is your current project. What you are now uh, working on is a bit um, uh, relevant to the uh, uh, grassroots movement, uh, technology sovereignty movements in Barcelona or inspired by that or, yeah. Yeah, so I would say, uh, so there's a, a couple of projects that I've been working on since um, finishing this this work in Barcelona. So the, the main project I've done over the past few years has been looking at the, uh, both the emergence of the social robotics industry, right? So robots that are sort of most usually humanoid robots that are socially interactive, uh, and are increasingly uh, making their ways into everyday spaces, homes, workplaces, care centers, um, schools, uh, uh, things of that sort. And so I've been interested in, in the sort of politics of that. But at the same time, I've, I've also been working with a, um, a roboticist at the University of Nevada, Reno, where I was uh, an assistant professor until recently, um, and with uh, uh, several other uh, collaborators uh, in, in Reno, Nevada, uh, to sort of collaboratively uh, design and and implement sort of a, a robot tour guide in a museum. And so this was something that initially I was quite uncomfortable with, if I'm being honest, but uh, we had museum directors come to us during COVID and say, um, you know, we think that a, 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 an interactive tour guide robot would be beneficial to the museum. We would really like to, to do this. Um, and so rather than saying going out and buying a pepper or something, or writing a grant to buy a pepper, which is a commercially available robot, um, which other uh, other museums like the Smithsonian in Washington D.C. have pepper robot tour guides. Um, rather than doing that, uh, right, what we were able to do is is come together uh, with the museum curators, uh, with students, and 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 uh, at the university with the roboticist, with a team of of geographers and geography students. Uh, to kind of reimagine uh, collectively, you know, what what should that look like? What what would a an appropriate? What would uh, how would that uh, how could that technology be appropriately developed to be uh, to both keep control for the museum curators, um, control over their data, control over how the robots use, um, 
and to imagine it sort of from that ground up, right? And so uh, that's an ongoing project, um, but one that I think uh, that sort of commitment that I have in that project to trying to sort of work from the the local material conditions, social conditions, right? This university campus, the unique sort of social conditions in, in Reno, Nevada, right? For instance, there's it's a, a place with uh, a huge housing issue um, and a lot of unhoused people who, some of whom go into some of these museums uh, that we're working in to, to uh, you know, get out of the cold or uh, to get inside uh, out of the rain. Uh, and so all of those things become really important when we start imagining, you know, what would a robot, what should a robot do or what should it not do, right, in a context like this? How do we theorize uh, tech from, from, you know, from the local conditions? Um, that's all something that I think uh, for me is really inspired by um, by the tech sovereignty movement. And then, um, I'm just starting a, a new uh, project now, um, that is, is interested in the way that blockchain technology is getting enrolled into urban imaginaries, urban governance imaginaries, but also urban development imaginaries as cities are, um, some city governments are increasingly interested in experimenting with blockchain technology to offer municipal services. And a lot of cities around the world have been um, competing to become kind of blockchain or crypto hubs, at least up until the recent crypto winter. Uh, although surprisingly, we still do see a continuation of this, which means I'm going to go ahead with the project anyways. Um, and and part of my interest in that uh, also stems from some of my time researching the tech sovereignty movement. And that I think a lot of the discourses around blockchain technology and how it might be used in, in, in cities uh, often tries to draw on, on imaginaries of democratizing, right? Democratizing technology or democratizing uh, municipal systems or creating new, you know, decentralizing. And so these are common discourses, right, that uh, are sort of key to the tech sovereignty movement, uh, democratization, decentralization. These are things that in general, I think a lot of uh, the groups that I worked with in Barcelona would find interesting, right? Um, but I think uh, the blockchain imaginary and and the vast majority of contexts uh, imagine very different things by democratization and decentralization. And so part of my interest in that project is, is in some way sort of parsing out uh, different imaginaries of, of democratizing technology, of decentralizing um, technology so that um, I can sort of... <laughs> Pit point to what I think is good and and productive from something like the tech sovereignty initiatives, uh, and then also more effectively sort of uh, uh, try to, I guess, counteract some of the claims uh, uh, in the blockchain sphere about uh, democratizing. Right, I think uh, the form of democratization, not democratization, quote unquote, that is often the case in in sort of blockchain communities, uh, is about individualizing. Um, people as consumers, right, or as uh, token holders or as contributors to um, blockchain projects as consumers. And, and I think that's very different to the tech sovereignty um, initiatives, uh, at least most of them, right, where I think they're very much about creating community, right, and, and working through things, the sort of messiness of, of creating community and working through things collectively. Um, so I think one is a sort of individualized version of, of democracy and decentralization. The other one is a, a collective uh, version and, and for myself, I'm interested in collective futures of of digitalization and not individual futures. Thank you so much um, of sharing your uh, works, your studies, and your insight. Um, also, it's good. Um, I uh, to, I read your works. I was always very interested in, and in this podcast, I had the chance to hear you review your works from Barcelona to. Uh, now the work that you're doing at Twente University. Um, thank you for uh, giving us your time. Uh, it was very, um, I think it was very interesting talk also for audience. Uh, we learn a lot. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, thank you both for uh, for having me and for, uh, for organizing this. And uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure. It's always interesting uh, myself to kind of reflect back on my, uh, on my past work and, and try to figure out how to, how to articulate it again, um, but uh, I'm I'm happy to see that it's still of interest to people, and I, I hope uh, listeners find it interesting as well. And and I'm really excited to see where others take some of these ideas, including I, I know the work that you're working on uh, uh, now in Germany. And so, um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to see uh, that these ideas, that this, these conversations continue into the future. Thank you.